Just kidding. Okay, uh, good morning. My name's Cole. Uh, I am the youth pastor here at Redemption Church, and I am uh, glad you are here. I hope that you have, hopefully you've been tuning in um, or been arriving here at the church, listening to the sermon series. The sermon series is called Origin Stories. We're walking through the book of Genesis, and the book of Genesis is weird and mystical and strange and if you've never really like just sat down and read large chunks of Genesis um, I would encourage you to do so it is it is genuinely interesting and it will inevitably guarantee you put you in this weird spot where you are not exactly sure what to do with God in the stories because sometimes God does things in the book of Genesis and we were like, well, this does, this just does not quite line up with my picture of what God is like. And uh, today is one of those stories. Today is a very, very, very strange and weird story. One that you might have heard before, one that you might, ha- might know. But uh, hopefully as I tell it and as we just kind of go slow through it and we let our imaginations think about it, uh, hopefully I, I, I pray that there's a bit of a disruption in, in you as you read it or as you listen. Um, a rabbi said, I read, that uh, when you approach the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis is the first book of the Bible, but it's only there, this is a, this is a great quote, it's only there so that you can get to it quickly. Uh, it's, it, for for this, this rabbi who was talking about the book of Genesis, it's not really the first book of the Bible for the Jewish people. In a lot of ways, Exodus is the first stories of the Jewish people. They consider the book of Exodus kind of their, kind of their, where things begin. And Genesis is like the stories you tell your kids when they have questions. Or, for instance, when you're reading something in, in, in the New Testament, I, I'm thinking of the book of John, and you see in the beginning God, you know, God created the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And like as you, as you read that, you're like, man, that sounds familiar and it's like a clue to go back to Genesis and kind of just refresh yourself on some of these origin, on some of these stories that um, can shed light on what you've been thinking about, what you've been wondering about. And so my question this morning is, what question are you carrying with you? What deep question are you in some way carrying with you this morning? And you're going to need that as we pay attention to this story. Because as this rabbi said, Genesis is meant to be approached with a question in your heart. What question do you have this morning? And as you bring that to the front of your mind, um, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 16. So if you're at home and you have your Bible or you're here, you have your Bible, you can turn to that. Otherwise, I will have it up here on the screen so you can follow along with me. Let's just start reading. Let's just start telling the story. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. I want to pause right off the bat. How many of you have seen the movie Up? Uh, the movie Up, it was kind of this weird experience where you thought this was going to be a cartoon. And in the first 10 minutes of the movie, you get this, this old man's life about, not, about his, not being able to have children and his family. And in the first 10 minutes in the theater, I'm, oh yeah, I remember theaters. Yeah, that was cool. <laughs> Anyways, uh, in the first 10 minutes in the, in the movie theater, you're like bawling, you're crying, you're like, what is happening? What is this movie that I'm watching? I came to watch dogs talking that they have a collar on. I did not expect to be introduced to this. And in this story, like this line sticks out to me. It sticks out to me personally. It sticks out, to, I hope it sticks out to you. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. It just sets the scene. 
It sets the, the pain of the story at the center of it. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. There's a lot going on here. Sarai says that Yahweh has kept her from having children. And you have to ask yourself the question, is this true? This is a woman who has, I would imagine, been praying, asking God for a child for years. She's not asking for a Mercedes, a 401k, a mini mansion. She's asking for a process that seems to work effortlessly for so many women throughout the ages to work for her once. Like one time, but nothing. And it is obvious, it is obvious by her explanation to Abram here that there is no explanation really as to why she can't have a baby. There's not really any, anything coming on the other end in terms of her prayers as to why this is not happening. The only way she can seem to make sense of what is going on in her, with her, or in her relationship with herself and nature, especially as someone who believes in Yahweh, the creator of the universe, her only conclusion is that God is keeping her from having a child. So I submit to you, that's not a crazy conclusion. It's a logical outcome. She's just thinking through this from where she sits in the world. So Sarai looks at her life. She commits to what she wants. She takes inventory of what she has to work with and says to her husband, go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And this is problematic, like right off the bat. We have a problematic story happening here. And we'll return to this problem in a bit. But first, I want to talk a bit about building and creating things. The Jewish people, first of all, the wisdom and the well that is the Jewish tradition. It is way deeper in many ways than we give it credit for. Maybe you don't, but it's, it's definitely way deeper than the tradition that I was brought up in. Uh, but there, there's some big things happening here, and we need to talk about this. When we create things, when we do as humans, we tend to simply reorganize raw material into patterns and structures, and voila, I built a chair, right? Like I take these things and I build this chair. Uh, this reorganizing material is a form of building, but it's not what the Jewish people consider to necessarily be creation. Creation is something different. When the Jewish people thought about God creating the world, they had a problem with imagining it in this kind of way, right? Uh, and they looked for a, a different kind of conceptual, how they, they, they tried to conceptualize how would God go about creating the universe. And I want you, I ask you to follow me for a second. There's this word, right, that the more Jewish, the mystical Jewish teachers, they have this word to describe this process of God creating the universe. God creates our existence by, and it's this word called zimzum. Zimzum, right? It should be on the screen right there. It's a very strange looking word. Bizarrely, zimzum means to contract or constrict. Okay? It means to contract or constrict, which is very strange. God is not building something necessarily. God is contracting or constricting God's self and creating space within God's self 
for existence to emerge. Cool, right? Really cool. This is different from just building. It's not just like God's going, chair. God is, you know, all-powerful, eternal. It opens up space within God's self. God then, uh, existence emerges from this void. In fact, humans have echoes of this. We have the ability, these strange echoes of this. We actually, we act, I think you actually probably know what Zimzum is, but you just have to kind of slow down and think about it for a second. We do this kind of creation when we speak. So think about breathing when we talk. Like right now I've been talking a lot, and I can sense that I need to take a breath. <laughs> in order to speak, we often constrict our breathing in order to make specific sounds and create words. Also, in order to uh, communicate an idea to you, I have to use specific words, right? Not every word, but specific words to communicate, communicate to you a specific idea. So in other words, language, words, right? They don't necessarily exist in, in and of themselves. We have to constrict in order to create. Yeah? Following me? Let's try this one. In the political world, historians often say that democracy, democracy doesn't really exist in the way that you can just say, hey, look, democracy. Instead, it is a set of laws, norms, virtues that constrict powerful and powerful people in such a way that creates this thing we call democracy to emerge. Democracy is stronger or weaker based on how we constrict power and powerful people, right? How we, how, what values we have, what practices we have, what norms we have, what virtues we have. Okay. Okay. So that was the deep end. Uh, nice work, everybody. You did it. Uh, that wasn't, hopefully that wasn't so bad. Working with youth ministry right now, I would be doing a lot to keep their attention. So like, uh, hopefully you're, you guys are paying attention. This is great. Abram, let's keep going. Abram. Uh, remember, Sarai says, Abram, go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Okay. So Sarai, Sarai has this void in her life. She's looking to build a family. And desperate people often do desperate things. Especially if, you only, if your only value in a patriarchal society comes from your ability to birth children, Sarai essentially gives gives her slave to be raped by Abraham, by Abram. And that's the truth. It's hard to say. And let's talk about Abram for a second. One of the things you'll notice is that Abram's behavior in this story can be read in two ways. A lot of scholars don't really agree about this. But one, Abram is very authoritative and dismissive of these female concerns because he has more important things on his mind. Throughout the story, Abram, Abram just kind of walks in um, the, the people will ask Abram a question, and Abram is like, huh, get away from me. Uh, Abram is just like not really even a person in the story. It's just like uh, this thing, right? Two, uh, the other way you can read it is he's written simply due to him being very uninteresting. I like that version better. <laughs> Abram is probably very uninteresting. So uh, he's, uh, he's written pretty simply. The odd, odds are it's probably both. Right? He's dismissive, he's authoritative, he has these more important things on his mind, and he's probably very uninteresting because he has all of this power in some way. Either way, Abram is obviously sitting on top of this hierarchy with his patriarchal power, doing stuff, doing 
Abraham things. And Abram's attention is obviously somewhere else. And Sarai is given in the text in the story, given the responsibility of managing the family concerns. And Hagar is a slave under the complete authority of Sarai. So this is kind of the structure of the story. And Sarai's plan actually works. But as we will find out, the law of unintended consequences comes back to bite Sarai. Let's look at this part. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. So Hagar is, is pregnant and Sarai begins to despise her. And then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now she knows she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Sarai begins to resent Hagar. And most scholars think, most scholars think, that the reason Sarai is upset is due to Abram's behavior. Not necessarily completely Hagar. Now, obviously she's upset with Hagar, right? There's, there's pain there. There's shame there. There's resentment there. But she is mad at Abram. Because it seems as though Abram is beginning to treat Hagar with more care and attention because he seems to only value what women can give him. Because of this, the patriarchal hierarchy is beginning to be upended. And Sarai is afraid, she's afraid, genuinely afraid, that this immigrant slave will take her place in the order of things. So she goes to Abram and says, there is a problem between you and me. We have issues. Then Abram, being Abram, gives this literally the least amount of attention he can and says, look at this line. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Abram is the worst. He's the worst in the story. Like, it's just like he's just so dismissive. So then Sarai mistreated Hagar. Mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. And, and we read that as like, oh, she mistreated Hagar, but I want to slow down for a second and, and really consider this. I think this is a pretty dark point in the story. Sarai won't just cut her loose because in some way Sarai needs her around. So she abuses Hagar to the point that Hagar risks her life by running away. Right? Hagar runs into the wilderness. She doesn't have a plan. She isn't entering into the void of the wilderness because the people of God have been, she, or she is entering into the void of the wilderness because the people of God have been so abusive to her and dismissive of her. Oh yeah, she's pregnant. Then God seems in the story shows some interest. Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And I love Hagar's response here because it's so unbelievably like, appropriate and I just pray it lands for you the way it lands for me. Sarai, or Hagar says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. Remember, the question was, where have you come from and where are you going? And she answers the first question, but she does not answer the second question. But within the, within the absence, there is an answer in there. She has no idea where she's going. It reminds, me, it reminds me of the Black Lives Matter protests 
I had a lot of friends in good faith ask this question. Yes, I see the problem, but what do these protesters want? What are, these pro what are they protesting for exactly? What policy do they want to be put in place? And I even asked this question at, this, at some points, like, what, what is it that they want? Like, what is the deal? Did they just want to, like, tear things apart, rah, 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 rah? But Hagar's response is so, so real and grounded in her experience. Where are you going? is a secondary question, and it only comes after you have answered and you have, and, and in some way other people have seen, where have you come from? Then God does something that I believe is meant to be disorienting. God does something that I think in the story is meant to be jarring. Something that is meant to shock you as the reader of the text. God says, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Why did God tell Hagar to go back to a place where she was a slave, she was abused, she was raped? Why did God tell her to go back there? And to be honest with the text, the answer from where I sit in the world is I don't know. But I don't want to lose the confusion that you're probably feeling or maybe the anger that you're feeling. I don't want to lose that. Because I could try and relieve the tension and make you feel better about this decision about God. I could make up something for you, but I'm not going to. And I think the story is wanting us to carry this disrupt disruption with us for a second as we follow through the story. To carry this disruption with us as we keep going on Hagar's journey with her. So if you are feeling like that, hold that. Let's, let's carry that with you. Because it's obvious something is up here. God asking Hagar to go back is problematic. It's intense. It's confusing. And while I do not think the story should be extrapolated out to how, how abused people should res respond to their abusers, I think that's ridiculous. I do want to lean in and focus on one aspect of this story that I do think God is doing here. I do want to bring this to the surface. God, for whatever reason, does not want Hagar to just run. God makes a promise to Hagar. God says, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. She says this to Hagar. In other words, you're going to live long enough for your child to be born. I can promise you that. And your child is going to live long enough to have kids. I can promise you that. And after like this poetic section in the text where Hagar is told to name her son Ishmael, something truly extraordinary happens. Verse 13, take a look at this. Hagar, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. Of course, she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer, we'll just say beer, because, you know, beer, lahai, ro'oi. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. Now, two things, two things. One, I don't really know what well they're talking about. This is not mentioned in the story. In fact, the origin of this well comes later in the text. It's one of these weird time travel texts where you kind of are assumed to know what this is. But if you're just reading it, you're like, what well are we talking about exactly? Um, I just find that interesting. But the main point here, the star of the show, is what Hagar does to God in the, in the story. 
Hagar, Hagar, Hagar names God. And if, if you're paying attention and you understand what's happening there, the Jewish people don't even say the name of God. They don't. No one gets to name God. In fact, I went to private school since fourth grade, had Bible class every day. I went to Manhattan Christian College as an undergrad. I had Bible as a Bible college. I'm getting my master's in theological studies. And as far as I can tell from my own memory and like Google searches, <laughs> I cannot find anyone else in all of scripture that had the audacity or the permission to name God. And I cannot tell you how bizarre this is. The, the Jewish people hold God's name as one of the most sacred things in existence. Even if Hagar didn't believe in Yahweh, even if Hagar didn't believe in Yahweh and didn't know the appropriate rules about Yahweh and Judaism, the writers of this story didn't have to add this part in. They could have just like left it out. They, but there it is. Mary doesn't name God. She's told the name Jesus, Jesus. This, 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 Hagar is like this story, this character that has been completely thrown out and dismissed. And, and I submit to you, it's possible, it's possible that she is one of the, mo the closest people, the most, a person who is the most in some way connected or close to God. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So I want to look at Sarai and Hagar here for a second. I'd like to just hold them together. Sarai, the wife of the father of God's chosen people, while she has so much, she has this devastating void in her life. She cannot birth a child, remember. This void is not just an inconvenience. It is the kind of suffering that has no rational explanation. There is no why. She is living every day with a body that she cannot make sense of, a God that she cannot connect with. The shame and regret of her life is causing her in many ways to do and participate in a truly terrible system of oppression. And then you have Hagar, an Egyptian slave of Sarai, exploited and abused by Abram and Sarai. Sarai's plan, right, goes horribly wrong, and Sarai begins to mistreat Hagar. Hagar becomes pregnant. And so this Egyptian woman runs from the people of God into the void, into the wilderness, and God meets her there. And she is seen by God, and she names God. After this connection, she leaves the void and goes back into Abram's household. So, we're going to 80s montage our way to the end of the text, end of the story, because there's a lot of chapters in, in, in between. Um, so here we go. Chapter 17, a lot of men who are too old to get circumcised get circumcised. It's a terrible read. Don't read it. Uh, God changes Abram and Sarai's name to Abraham and Sarah. Thank, thank, you, thank you, God, for doing that. It's so much easier to say. Uh, Ishmael grows up to be a teenager and is the proud son of Abraham. This is something that surprised me about the text. Abraham and Ishmael are, like, really close, like, really close. In fact, this is a, a small thing. When Abram dies, the Bible specifically says that, that uh, Ab uh, Ishmael and Isaac come together to bury their father. I don't know why. I just thought that was beautiful. 
Hagar is now called Hagar the Egyptian throughout the text instead of Hagar the slave. That's, that's significant. Sarah, Sarah is told that she is going to have a son. His name will be Isaac. God sends a, a fireball from the sky to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. That happened. Uh, Abram and Sarah get into some hijinks. It's crazy, crazy hijinks. And then finally, chapter 21, Isaac is born. And when Isaac is born, all of these old wounds begin to emerge. All of these old things that you're like, if you've been reading the text, you're like, oh man, the, the, these characters have not dealt with the problem yet. Here's the text. The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abram held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abram was mocking. Very weird way to say that, but like, we'll get to this in a second. And she said to Abram, Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. So verse 9 is interesting. It says that Ishmael was mocking Isaac, right? A sixth grader, and most, most scholars think in some way a 13-year-old, a, a, a sixth grader was mocking a preschooler. And the issue here is that the word for mocking right, in, in, in Hebrew, can also be translated as playing. It, it really kind of just means at its root, laughing, right? So yeah, Ishmael could totally be mocking Isaac. That totally could be happening, um, I, I guess. And you, and you can see how that would cause Sarah to be upset. I'm not so sure how Ishmael, things have been going great. I'm not sure how Ishmael mocking Isaac would all of a sudden go, you two out, see ya, get out of here. I think, personally, if I was like making a movie or writing a story, I think in some way it makes more sense to me to have it be Ishmael was laughing. Here's why. I think Sarah would have seen Ishmael and Isaac getting along and playing. And this would be the thing that made her realize that not only was Ishmael going to get the inheritance, fear began to set in that Isaac was going to be okay with it that their relationship in some way would subvert what she wanted. This is just me playing with the text. I have no idea. That's my guess. And so Sarah decides to act. Verse 11, the matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. Right. It, again, Abram. It mattered, it mattered to him because it concerned his son. Okay. Uh, but God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave woman into a nation also, because he is your offspring. And God does some strange things here. But take a look at verse 14. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. And so Hagar and Ishmael are kicked out of the people of God. And they are sent into the, into the wilderness once again. This time, I submit to you, it was not just a physical wilderness. This time, it was an existential wilderness as well. You can imagine her thinking to herself, did God lie? Is this some kind of game? What is happening right now? What is happening here? 
You can imagine their journey as Hagar is trying to track how she ended up in this space. You can imagine her feeling all over again, all the pain she had to shoulder in order for her son to have a chance at flourishing. As Hagar searches for why this is happening to her, you can imagine her beginning to realize, I don't know if I'm going to get a reason. I don't know if I'm going to get any meaning here. I don't know if I'm going to get any sort of grounding, some handlebars to understand what is happening to me. I don't know what the Jewish equivalent to have faith because God has a plan for you. I don't know what the Jewish equivalent is. And I'm definitely not sure what the ancient Middle Eastern Instagram post would be that would say faith over fear, right? But I'm sure those words were probably landing pretty hollow to her experience. Hagar was going to watch her son die a painful death. Or her son was going to be alone at 13, trying to survive a meaningless desert. There's this theologian, Dolores Williams. Has anyone ever heard of Dolores Williams? If you have, raise your hand. I, great. I want, I want you to check this out. She wrote a book entitled Sisters in the Wilderness. I don't know if you can see it, but if you want to search it, search for it right now. Sisters in the Wilderness, right? This is book. You got to read this. She was born in 1937, right? And in the South, in the South and she went to Union Theological Seminary in New York. She said in a prepared speech that you can actually find, you can actually find the speech, that growing up in the South, growing up in the South, made her wonder what the point was to all this God stuff. There was this void in her, this search for meaning. Why should she, why should she care about all this Christianity stuff? And I'm telling you as a youth pastor, if you want to know a little insight into our, into our young people, uh, probably not young people, probably you too. Maybe you've decided this long ago, but the question is not, is God real? The question is, why do I care? Right? And she has this experience in the South and like trying to figure out why should I care about this? Because, she says, what do you do when you love a country, but that country does not love you back? Like, what, what do you do when you love the church, but the church does not love you back? What do you do when you love a God, but that God doesn't love you back? So this African-American woman from the South, she goes to seminary. <laughs> but that's not exactly the approach you think you'd make. Usually people run, but she decides, no, actually, I'm going to go to seminary. And it's fascinating. She just like leans into the void, this, this weird tension and pain in her life. This question that she has at the center of herself. She said first she discovered liberation theology. She learned under the great James Cone, the father of black liberation theology. She, she said that it freed her to see that God's primary concern is for the liberation of poor and oppressed people. She then, she says, she then discovered feminism and the teaching of Beverly Harrison. She said it was the first time anyone ever asked her to consider the environment that created you. 
living in New York, she said she had no desire to go back to the South as, as, as a black woman. She had no desire to go back to the South emotionally, theologically, spiritually. But this question that Beverly Harrison kept asking her, consider the environment that made you. It haunted her. So as she kept learning and growing, Dolores Williams began to find her own voice. She said she began to realize that she was a black woman. Like, that's true. Not a black man. Not a white woman. Not a white man. She was a black woman from the South. And from where she was oriented in the world, she had some observations. <laughs> she had some things to say. Listen to this. This is fascinating. She noticed that feminism, this is what she says, feminism was an upper middle class white woman's movement. And while she agrees and says yes to the movement, she, she says that sometimes white women were often too tempted to play a man's game. It didn't speak to her existence. She noticed that black liberation theology was not completely speaking to her existence either. That while she affirms and says yes to the, to, to the release, to the liberation of black people from oppression and poverty, she was uncomfortable with the male interpretation and dissemination of power. It made her uncomfortable. So Dolores Williams takes a term that is a combination of these two things, but it's birthed from the experience of being a black woman. And the theology is called womanist theology. Her book, Sisters in the Wilderness, is about her looking through the pages of scripture and realizing her deep connection and bond with Hagar. Her intimate connection with Hagar's experience and story. Her bizarre similarities in the life pattern of Hagar's journey. To always be called that Egyptian. To be a slave. To have her son and her son's future ripped away because some other person does not want their children to share in the inheritance. To be completely ignored and dismissed by a self-obsessed male power figure. Weeping before a God that you love, wondering why that God, that God does not love you. Standing before the people of God, wondering why the people of God do not see you. Verse 15, when the water in the skin was gone, oh man, this is tough. She put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And she sat there and she began to sob. Oh, man. So there's this Jewish phrase that we talked about a while back called zimzum. It means to constrain or constrict. It is how God goes about creating our existence. Within God's self, God constricts God's presence and existence emerges from the void. Dolores Williams also says that Hagar knows something that only black women know. A special knowledge that is quite difficult for other people to comprehend and trust. And she invites, this is the beauty of her writing, she invites readers to be grafted into that wisdom. When you feel the void, when you become aware of God constraining God's self, 
when you are searching and searching for meaning. And there is just no explanation as to why this is happening. Do not run. Do not build. Do not bury your head. Wherever it is that God seems absent, lean in and pay attention. Because God has not abandoned you. Zimzum reminds us that if God has constricted God's presence and a chaotic void has formed, God is about to create something completely new in you, in the world, in society, in your family. God is about to do a new thing. The New Testament might call this new creation. In the midst of this wilderness, in the story, this happens. Verse 19, then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Verse 20, God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. From Egypt. Dolores Williams says that womanist theology learns from Hagar and from the experience of being a black woman, a pattern about the universe, a specific, and, and also a specific set of survival skills. I love that. That's her language. Like, these are, this is a specific set of survival skills. While these skills may not be triumphant and powerful like all of us who are obsessed with winning and being great, William says that Hagar knows how to survive. After this experience, experience, she knows the source of her existence. And that source, that well, creates and recreates her over and over again. And this makes Hagar, in the words of Cornell West, this makes Hagar strong and fortified for the days ahead. And you know, because you notice in verse 20, if you take a look, uh, they never left the desert. It says, while he was living in the desert of Paran, uh, they never left the desert. They just stayed there. They didn't have to leave. They didn't have to run. Hagar and Ishmael found a well. So as we look into our world, I am burdened with the sense that this, this fall and this winter might be difficult on, on us, on our city, our families, our friends, and of course, amongst the most vulnerable among us. I also have this sense, this overwhelming sense in some way, that what helped get us this far is not going to get us to the end of this season. There are only so many hikes we can hike. There are only so many beers we can drink. There are only so many fights we can fight, sports we can watch, TV shows we can binge, video games we can video game, and... Zoom calls, we can Zoom. Someone unplug the Zoom, please. Just unplug it. I think we are, not I think, we know we are living in a time of constriction. I know this because I hear the pain, either explicitly or implicitly in our conversations. Where is God? Why is this happening? How do we get out of this? We're just, be and I, we're just beginning to realize, that's the scary part, is that we are in this void. 
And we are not in control of what is happening or what will happen. We're just not in control. I don't know who is. I've had video chats with students about how they feel they're going nuts. This, this country is not the country they thought it was. Their families were not the families they thought they were. Their churches were not the churches they thought they were. I've heard stories of families fraying at the seams due to all the time they are spending together. And I have a friend that calls me like at 9 and 10 o'clock, like once a week. And I, every time I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm escaping the house. <laughs> and I get it. I get it. But in all of this empty space and constriction, in all this seemingly meaningless chaos, you can feel your brain and your heart begin to spin and search, looking, trying to answer the question, why, why? And what makes it all worse is all the empty space brings to the surface problems that were there the whole time. We just had enough money to stay ahead of the problem. And because we have not been here before, we do not know what to do. And I'm reminded of a conversation with a father of one of our students here in youth group. I dropped his son off at the house after youth group and I was complaining to him about the current state of our society and our country and I was just going on. And he looked at me in the eyes and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said in broken English to me, I feel sorry for you. I got in the car and I thought to myself, why would he say that to me? And it dawned on me, he's been in this void before. He's never had the luxury of a society that wasn't chaotic and a mess to him. A culture that didn't want him around. And he knows survival skills. He knows where the well is. I have no clue where the well is. And even if I did find it, I don't remember exactly where it was. And this journey to find it is going to hurt. So brothers and sisters, may we have the courage to lean in and keep our eyes open to the chaos and look for what new thing God is about to do in us and in our society. When we feel God remove God's presence, when we start to begin to go, where is God? Pay attention. God is doing something new. May we take inventory of the voices in our life that are trying to sell us gold, vitamin supplements, and mass global conspiracies about how to answer all of these problems. May we take inventory of the voices we listen to. May we listen and follow Hagar to the well. May Yahweh recreate our life and our society new again. And may we, as Redemption Church, be a funnel to bring about the cool waters of justice and redemption. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you and we are just grateful for the story that we've been given um, by the text. I think the problem for me is that often because I have enough, I can distract myself from what is this looming sense, this void in me. And God, I often, I, I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to solve it. I don't know how to solve our problems in our society or myself or my family or whatever it is. And God, I just, I get this tension and I often just offload it someplace else or I just distract myself. 
And I know I'm not alone in that. God, I pray that you would give us the courage to just pay attention, to expect, to look for what new thing you are doing. Because I, according to this story, the pattern of the universe is that something new is happening. You're moving. You're recreating. And God, may we follow Hagar to that well to learn the skills, to learn from them, from those who have, have been in the wilderness for a long time. Father, may we humble ourselves and listen. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to our time of communion, time of communion, invite everybody to stand. And um, those of you at home, if you would gather the bread and the cup for you as well. If you are here in the room, hopefully you received um, a communion cup. If you didn't, you can run back um, in the center. Beth has them.